Welcome to FinTech Fridays. Oh yeah! It's a weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things FinTech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hello, everyone. My name is Craig Asano, the founder and CEO of NCFA, welcoming you to a special episode, 44 FinTech Fridays. Today is a weekly podcast brought to you by NCFA and Partners, where we sit down with incredible people in the FinTech and funding community, coast to coast across here in Canada, as well as around the globe to talk about trends, product innovations, developments and challenges. FinTech Fridays is an evolving and innovative educational platform focused on delivering authentic personalities, content, and storytelling on the journey of mainstream adoption of the new financial technologies and their impact on the future of finance. Uh, as mentioned earlier today, we have a special episode with a few NCFA advisors joining us today to discuss recent current trends and news. It's something that we've been meaning to do for a while here on the podcast, and today uh, is a perfect day to pilot our first NCFA's advisor podcast. Uh, there's there's no scripts here. We've just advised our advisors to come up with a topic that they'd like to bring forth to the table for discussion, and we'll probably run with that format for the next uh, 45 minutes. So just a quick introduction, uh, or maybe I'll have the guests uh, introduce themselves. Uh, we have four guests joining us today, all of which are um, valued NCFA advisors and members here at the association. Um, uh, I would just say maybe I'll call in no particular order. Richard, could you um, just do a quick intro and maybe uh, also just mention your, your involvement and any thoughts with NCFA as an advisor as well? Thank you very much, Craig. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. And good afternoon, panel. It's a privilege and an honor to, uh, to be here with you today. Uh, my background is all finance, uh, going way back to the Jurassic period uh, when I had hair. Uh, lately, uh, I've been engaged in doing some fairly heavy-duty research for private sector and public sector clients on uh, risk capital issues, uh, on access to capital for startups and what are called today scale-ups. Uh, most recently, uh, a major report that I, I shall talk about uh, shortly uh, to the federal government on uh, capital raising prospects for medium-sized, high-growth companies in this country. So thank you. Perfect. Uh, so we certainly got capital covered. Sounds good to me. That's um, Robin, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Uh, great to be here. Uh, my background is law and uh, regulation, uh, not entirely in the financial uh, services sector, but certainly for the last uh, 15, 20 years uh, in the financial services sector, uh, both in the United Kingdom and in uh, Canada. Um, I'd love to talk about uh, some uh, of the recent regulatory activity around the globe in, in, in due course. Perfect. Uh, sounds like something that we can kick off next. But uh, before we do, we've got two more participants today. David Lukacs, can you introduce yourself? Thanks, Craig, and uh, great to be here with everyone uh, on, a, on a, what I would hope is a beautiful day. But uh, David Lukacs, uh, CEO and uh, Chair of Cabin Systems North America. We're in the business of verifying and managing and monetizing digital identity. We help people um, control 
that new area of self-sovereign and digital identity. And uh, we're a Canadian-listed uh, company on the CSC under the symbol Cabin, K-A-B-N. Perfect. Uh, sounds great. I certainly have been following the ticker myself. Uh, and we have Lynn Johansson. Lynn, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thank you very much, Craig. Um, hasn't it been a great decade so far this week? <laughs> There's so much going on uh, in in the in the space here. Um, I am in an, uh, a niche management consulting firm in the environmental area, and I have been very much involved in the whole field of green finance. And a couple of years ago, I caught on to what Craig was doing, and I thought it was very interesting because typically in the green finance discussions I'm involved in we're setting standards, international standards, and we're dealing with the very large companies. But some of the people that have been involved in NCFA have brought to my attention a very different way of looking at green finance. And I think there is an extraordinary opportunity here, not only to help drive the opportunity that that, uh, digital finance offers, but also how it can interface with the whole idea of green finance move things along. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, maybe um, we should jump right into that topic, Lynn. I know uh, decentralized finance really took the financial services, the entire finance community, the crypto world as well by storm this past um, summer. And it, it really you know, poses an interesting tech stack that might be able to use in, in green finance markets. I know that De- DeFi or decentralized finance has cooled off a little bit since then, but it doesn't seem like it's it's going away. And it seems like, you know, a very interesting framework model to aggregate uh, communities and stakeholder participation on multiple levels. And um, what what are your what are your thoughts? Let's start getting into the uh, discussion uh, about the potential opportunities and obstacles of mirroring initiatives like DeFi with green finance. Thanks, Craig. Um, If you sort of look at what's going on in the last little while, there was a report, I actually just got up just before this call, um, that talked about how a group of entities, including the World Gold Council, the Silver Institute, European Central Bank, and some others said that the value of global money supply in last year was 600 times higher than the value of new gold coins minted. And in part, I think, because of the government's trying to bring out capital to help companies get through this thing called COVID, um, they were saying that that has increased to 1,600 times over minted coins. The opportunity, I think, is if you kind of look at it, and and I've got my, you know, my green hat on here, my ecological hat on here, is one of the things we're very concerned about in the environmental world is not just climate change, it's the whole concept of biodiversity. And I think what the digital finance situation brings for is what I'll call digital diversity. And there's so many aspects um, that we could be looking at. If you wanted to take it on a straight sort of environmental impact, if we can move from digging up you know, minerals out of the ground and moving to electrons, there still is a carbon footprint to that, but it might be appreciably less. And as opposed to being localized, it's a diversified impact. But I also think that one of the opportunities 
is, and I, and I have to apologize, I don't have the gentleman's name, I can't have conference, right? But this one chap talked about democratization of capital markets. That gave us just the ability to vote with every dollar. And so if you think of some of the developments that we need to occur to get a green economy going, you have this chance to have, have dramatically increasing the speed of transfer finance and you also move money so that when a small business comes to the forefront, what we're really needing is like $10,000. You can have people who want to into that idea and then through digital finance, they can fund that process far faster than we have before. So I'm interested to see how other people on the call, how they can see the sort of the shift or in the changing technology may assist us. Right. One, one thing, Lynn, I just want to make sure you're speaking uh, directly into that microphone. It, it was a little, uh, just a little choppy, but um, I, I think most of us got the, the gist of, of mm -hmm. you know, the points. Um, I'd love to, I, I heard the topic around, you know, access to, to capital and, and one reason why you were looking at the innovative uh, opportunities in, in decentralized finance and how that can benefit uh, the areas in, in climate change and green finance initiatives you're looking at. And Richard, really, this is a uh, you know, question for, for you since you've been doing some research on access to capital. And does, does a technology and a, and a model like DeFi, uh, you know, how does it, is it going to, uh, to work or an initiative uh, like green finance. I mean, I know in your networks, you've been talking to a lot of folks uh, that have certain strong uh, perspectives on both sides, you know, of, of what is green finance and uh, I'd love okay. to hear your thoughts. Okay, uh, in no particular order. And as a former board chair of uh, Sierra Club of Canada Foundation, way back when, uh, and confirmed environmentalist and biodiversity supporter, uh, I'd like to see personally as much and as many resources and, and efforts devoted towards uh, what we could call green finance as possible. Uh, the difference between, to my mind, uh, green finance uh, or financing green companies, to put it a little bit differently, and financing IT, information tech, or bio life sciences, or ag, uh, is that a huge amount uh, of the private sector appetite depends on what governments do. Uh, so if you look south of the border right now, there's this immense contest going on between the Republicans and the Democrats, and there'll be a materially different cast to the opportunities for green finance in the States and spilling over to Canada if one party wins rather than the other party. If Trump and his Republicans win, it'll be a lot tougher. Uh, if Biden and his party wins, it'll be a lot easier and there'll be big spinovers, spinoffs here into Canada. Uh, if you look at the capital raising uh, issues today, uh, uh, research I've done on behalf of the federal government shows that green uh, finance companies tend to be largely these days, with some exceptions, 
at the smaller end of the SME spectrum, small and medium-sized enterprises. Uh, and as such, their capital calls, at least immediately, are not all that great. Uh, if you cast your mind to recent news, look at uh, FinTech Emerging Unicorn Well Simple, which is backed by Power Corporation here in, uh, in Montreal. And their last financing round was 114 million US, led by three US gigantic venture capital funds. Uh, and my, I know that there are separate and distinct markets, uh, tiers one, two, and three for capital raising for earlier stage SMEs in this country. And well, simple is at the top end, uh, which cuts off at about 20 million US. Uh, in that market, uh, if you've got a fast growing company, you've got between 100 and 500 499 employees, uh, US funds will be knocking on your door like there's no tomorrow. In fact, TCV, the lead investor in the Well Simple deal, uh, acknowledged that it had had Well Simple on its radar uh, since 2015. Uh, there are extensive what are called smile and dial operations in Canada, whereby call centers, very high end call centers, uh, usually out of New York, uh, simply dial every company that's raised $5 million in a Series A round. And they try to get meetings with the likes of TCV or Kane Anderson or Warburg Pincus. At the bottom end, uh, which is more, which is mostly where the green, green finance companies are, uh, 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 one sort or another, it's companies looking for less than 5 million. And the market there is very jumpy. Pricing is incredibly uneven. And your best bet at getting financing is probably in Quebec. Anyway, I've probably said enough. Mm. Well, I i mean, you touched upon the, the U.S. election. And, you know, most would, who are following would know that if Joe Biden becomes uh, voted in power, they'll strengthen the whole green green case. I read an interesting article the other day about the... Uh, the green ETFs that have grown uh, 160% the last six months. And it's, it's not uh, a, a small uh, sum of money. I think these, these funds have, have grown, as you're mentioning, much, much larger than anything potentially could be put together here in Canada. But um, is, is it with, with the federal governments in Canada support for those pipeline projects uh, and, and the folks in Alberta that are still getting paid on, let's call it a declining industry at this point with peak oil, where, where, how, how from a capital raising perspective and how that's going to marry with these new sort of innovative financing models, even if they have a role to help finance, as you're saying, earlier stage, maybe smaller green finance companies. Are they small companies we're talking about here, Lynn, or... Uh, just to come back to you, is, is, are these, what kinds of uh, projects are requiring, I would have thought they're massive infrastructure projects that require uh, all sorts of capital. They're, they're not small, small companies. Uh, well, they're, can you hear me okay this time? Yeah, I, we, we can, it's much better, yeah. Okay, um, well, you are looking at infrastructure projects and those are more often you know, public partner 
public and private sector sharings of those things. Um, what I came in under is I, I'm currently involved in writing a green finance standard. It's an international one. And our interest is to make sure that there is a mechanism so that if person A has money and person B wants money, the first thing they really do is the question is asked is, have you looked at your environmental impacts of what you're trying to propose, whether it's a performance issue or whether it's a, a specific environmental impact issue. But so as the other gentleman said, so much of the opportunity out here is in very small companies because they are the ones who do the innovations. And they don't typically get looked at in terms of financing. And I'm what I'm talking about here is, you know, really like micro enterprise. And so much of what I think the digital economy or digital finance opportunity offers is that you have people that, you know, do crowdfunding and they what they need is they need twenty five thousand dollars and and they don't have the time to do all the paperwork that these bigger projects will require. So this is, I think, really where my interest area is, is seeing how can we get the digital finance situation to make finance available? Because those are the critical times to get money in the door to get these innovations going. So I know that's quite answered your question, but... <clears throat> Um, infrastructure projects, I mean, that's, that's big money. And you've got several of the big banks in Canada have put forward the fact that they're going to be offering sustainable finance funds. So, for example, Bank of Montreal, they've earmarked $450 billion to be available by 2025. They're not going to fund a microenterprise out of that purse. Like, you don't think so. But there's things that they could do to help that. But so there's, you know, it's such a big playing field and there's so many variables, whether it's to finance a green company and then who determines what that means. And then is the financing itself, um, is it a green bond? Are you doing a green lease? You know, it's, it's just such an open-ended field at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just to interject briefly. I mean, we're so, so desperate funding for um, uh, green activities the, uh, globally, you know, entities like the Asian Development Bank and so on have put absolutely enormous figures on the amount that's going to be needed, both from governments and from the private sector. And, and so it seems crazy that we're not more advanced in Canada on the democratization of capital side and, and on the standards side both it's crazy to me that it's not much easier for retail investors uh to 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 spend a thousand dollars or five thousand um, dollars on um green bonds uh for example uh and you know what specifically can fintechs be doing um to help on this front mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well robin since um you want to jump in here from a, I know you track all things, it seems uh, regulatory and certainly abreast of some of the changes that are happening in the DeFi and the crypto space, but uh, are there specific regulatory activities that are, you know, coming out around the globe and, and that, 
that will put Canada further behind without those standards? And what, what is the approach for, I guess the question is really around, how do we finance innovation here in Canada? And, and it's, it's degree of importance. And it, it comes back to that, you know, how productive are we? How competitive are we? Are, are we operating, you know, in, out of an expensive uh, pocket because the rest of the world continues to move forward? And it seems like Canada is always on the cusp of, of obtaining um, that capturing and monetizing the value, if, if we can use the word monetizing it, uh, for the benefit of, of the greater good. But it, what are you seeing it from a regulatory perspective? Yeah, are we on the cusp? I don't think so. I think we're increasingly falling uh, behind, um, not just in in um, the area of innovation and fintech, but uh, let, let's just stick with that um, for now. Um, let me just whiz through some regulatory activities. Um, they're coming down fast and furious, uh, um, so much so um, that it's all becoming a bit of a dog's um, breakfast. And just, just to segue off um, briefly, uh, it, it occurs to me that we could use um, some kind of grand map um, that can show us what is going on in various uh, jurisdictions. I mean, we're well beyond the Excel spreadsheet stage now. Uh, and some of the more innovative regulatory activities, the more sensible regulatory activities are actually happening in smaller jurisdictions like Gibraltar, like Malta, like Hong Kong, like, like, like uh, Singapore. So you don't want to, to leave them um, off a, a regulatory map. So I just, I just put that out there for now. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, let's say I comply. Could you, could you step up and produce uh, such a map? I'm, I'm sure some organizations are monitoring all of this in a more, much more sophisticated uh, way. Um, uh, and it would be good to hear from them. Um, so can I just talk about the UK uh, briefly because I like their approach with respect to uh, crypto and FinTech and all things uh, innovative? Sure, absolutely. Okay, I, you know, my preference is, is for the UK, it's my, my background, but they have been very sophisticated about um, doing the analysis, examining the obvious problems um, and taking taking care of those relatively quickly. So um, AML, CFT, fraud, theft, market manipulation, um, and, and, and so on. And they've produced an excellent piece of guidance, uh, which um, talks about um, crypto assets, digital assets, virtual assets, however you want to label them, and then um, sets out which virtual assets will be a security, which will be a utility token, and which an exchange token. Those are those are the three categories. Uh, it's simple, they haven't overly complicated it, and I recommend it uh, to, to uh, everyone on this, uh, who's listening to this podcast. Um, they're now, um, they're being very conservative because of their strong belief that you don't regulate unless it's clearly demonstrated to be necessary. Um, they are not a jurisdiction that regulates to fill a gap. That is not the way their analysis works. If they identify a market problem and if it's a problem that the regulator should fix, uh, then they go to consultation on, uh, on solutions. They go to consultation on cost-benefit analysis uh, in a way that uh, very definitely does not happen here in Canada. By and large, I mean, OSPI uh, is, is, uh, is, 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 is close, but, but, they're, but they're not there. So at the moment in the UK, 
in addition to AML fraud and so on, they're proposing uh, only um, to uh, um, extend their financial promotion rules to some crypto assets that are at present not regulated at all. Um, and so that's a very interesting consultation document um, to look at. Um, and there's going to be a, a consultation document soon on stable coins um, and question mark. Um, so we wait to, um, to see um, what that will contain, uh, hopefully before the end of, of this year. Um, uh, and I will make a couple of comments on Canada, Craig, or does anybody else want to kick in at this point? Well, I was going to comment, uh, it's David, I was going to comment on uh, AML and fraud when it comes to the UK. And, and I'll, I'll agree with that because uh, Kevin's ID platform is actually born out of Gibraltar and the UK. And it's, um, the, you know, the rules have been very, very favorable in those jurisdictions to, maybe able, to be able to manage um, uh, fraud detection and AML um, compliance. Um, uh, so I, I think that's an important point. When it comes down, as you know, I hope we talk a bit about digital identity, but those are are, are definitely contributing factors. But I will also mention that I'm that some might be aware that with the recent um, uh, Brexit issues, uh, the U, both the UK and and now the US are having uh, GDPR compliance issues, and um, um, those are going to have to change as well because both are falling outside the purview of GDPR. Mm -hmm. Yeah, isn't that a huge yeah. issue, data? And it is. I know, Kevin, you'll, uh, David, you'll talk about, sorry, I'm going to call you Kevin. You'll talk about that in, in a sec. I don't want to spend too much time on uh, uh, regulation. Uh, Craig, if it's okay, I might just gallop through a list. Uh, there's just so much going on uh, right now. Yeah, but let's let's cover the, the Canadian per perspective um, and then we'll try to to tie it back into some some takeaways of, of thoughtful takeaways here. You know, um, Canada is not uh, operating at a high high level at the moment on the financial services side. Uh, um, and I'm just going to mention a couple of things again because there's so much going on in Canada as as well, not necessarily entirely positive. Uh, um, and then I'll throw it open, and if anybody wants to raise something specific, they should they should do that. The approach here is very different from the approach in the UK. We're still very the regulators here are still very very old old school. Um, the CSA Canadian Securities Administrators is uh, has uh, put out a staff notice uh, this year that proposes to regulate crypto exchanges. Um, in via a rather contrived theory that essentially turns a traded crypto asset that would otherwise not be a security into a security when it is not delivered to the purchaser more or less um, instantly. Um, this is a pretty this is a pretty uh, novel approach, and uh, we're, we're getting some um, some squeaks back um, from the industry, uh, and we'll wait to see how CSA reacts to that. Otherwise, other entities that actually want to be regulated because it gives them, um, um, uh, it, it makes them uh, in the face of the public um, more, more reliable, more able to be trusted. Um, various entities have become regulated through various mechanisms in Canada. And I have to see, say it is rather confusing. Um, so it would be great if Richard, if you are 
up on this. It would be great to hear a little bit more about Well Simple. I think three of their subsidiaries have got three different registrations, one of which is in New Brunswick. Um, <laughs> and, in, and in other uh, respects, we know that uh, not others, others than Well Simple have become regulated recently by becoming um, dealers, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just yet another form of, of dog's breakfast, and it's a bit hard to pick it pick it all apart. And that is is in part because we're not there at the table, so we don't know exactly what's going on between these entities and um, the regulators, so that we're able to understand what hoops they've jumped through and just precisely what it is that the regulators. Um, looking for are you able to say anything uh, a few things uh, not particularly about well simple but stepping back it's longer than my view uh, and my research that uh, we are we are grossly overregulated uh, and poorly regulated insofar as the entire financial services industry is concerned it's a god-awful mishmash I apologize for for the for the swear word, I'll put 25 cents uh, in cryptocurrency into a box. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just a dog's breakfast. And when you say, why is that the case? Uh, it's not culture. It's uh, It goes right back to 2008 uh, when our financial system emerged relatively unscathed uh, from the monstrous uh, financial debacle that hit uh, the UK and the US and other countries as well, but those two in particular, and which led to uh, 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 a resurgence of uh, industry challengers uh, and a receptive regulatory environment that was grossly dissatisfied with the performance of the existing uh, status quo financial institutions. That never happened here. Uh, and what's ha what has happened with the benefit of history is that, uh, I mean, sometimes your best learnings are <laughs> come from your biggest failures, not from your successes. Uh, and in a sense, regulators here, by and large, are fighting the last war. Uh, they're putting up marginal lines uh, all over the place and and stifling the sort of innovation uh, that I think you see in other more nimble jurisdictions from Singapore to Australia to the UK. Uh, I, one counterpoint to this is, uh, is some analysts think it really doesn't matter. And it really doesn't matter because once uh, new digital technologies are rapidly uh, adopted in other countries, uh, we'll be uh, we'll be fast uh, fast followers, and it won't matter uh, too too much. In fact, the Canadian banking industry, as a whole, and talking about the Schedule One banks now, uh, have a long history as as being fast followers, and and the system is setting itself up now to to try and take that route. I'm not sure if that will succeed. Uh, because the real challenge will be coming from big tech, uh, whether it's American or Chinese, whether it's Google, Facebook, Intuit, PayPal, 
or Tencent or Alibaba? I, I, I'd like to comment here because I think there's there's a huge piece we're missing. Um, and um, I want to be uh, counter to part of this argument that Canada actually is one of the primary leaders in, in the formation of self-sovereign ID and digital identity, which for most crypto-backed uh, um, assets, especially when it comes to security-backed assets, is, is, is a fundamental requirement. Canada actually leads um, with companies, uh, I'd like to say like ourselves, companies like SecureKey, DIF, Trust Over IP Foundation, where, you know, if you think about the Internet, if we just shift for a moment into technology, you know, based on Richard's comment, when the Internet was designed, and unfortunately, I guess, or fortunately, I've been around since that beginning, when the Internet was designed, the identity layer was something that was never considered. And now we're, we're focusing on whether it's the travel rule, FATF, you know, OECD. There's, there's so many issues that are coming up because the movement of crypto, the movement of securities has got to be tied to an individual or tied to an organization or a holder, as we call it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I want to, want to be clear here. Canada is a paramount leader in this industry. And it's a very quiet industry that is going to become very vocal in the next couple of years. And I think that's a fundamental situation right now. You know, when we think about um, uh, safety of assets and security of assets, we're all fundamentally controlled by a username and a password. I mean, ultimately, you know, we saw the CRA breach and we see breaches Mm -hmm. every day, fundamentally not in Canada. Okay. But we see fundamental banking breaches in the U S and beyond. And I think our, uh, the Canadian banks have taken a very, very strong position that they are going to move to what's called self-sovereign identity. And just for the listeners, you know, if I take out my wallet today, my regular wallet, I can control what goes in there. That's a self-sovereign wallet. And my, my keys become an opportunity for me to protect my valuables. If I can digitally tie those to my identity, then I'm in control of what I can share when I share it and how I share it. And I think all of what we talk about um, is going to come down to how, whether it's well simple, whether it's uh, funds, whether it's banking, it's all going to be controlled by a holder's ability to prove who they are. Uh, and, and that goes, that extends to, I don't want to say contract tracing, but venue location check-in and safety measures and, and airport security. In fact, we see companies like Clear, which those that may have traveled to the United States, see the Clear um, program is now moving into a more digital identity-focused business. So I think I think what we're seeing is we are seeing pockets of major innovation in Canada, and and it it might be quiet, but it's at a baseline layer that is going to become very important to the overall spectrum of financial services in the next two to three years. I think those are really well-chosen points, David, uh, really well-chosen. And I think uh, my mind goes back to uh, to that Jerry Maguire question, show me the money. So where's the money going to come from? And the chances are that given given where we are as a, as a late industrial country, the chances are that uh, our best and our brightest uh, will get the growth capital that they require uh, either from an investment fund like TCV or, or Greylock, uh, or they'll get it from a U.S. listing in the NASDAQ because you get much more liquidity there than 
uh, on the Canadian exchanges, or uh, Microsoft, Google, Amazon will come in and do a kill merger. And I think a looming national security issue for the country is in, in the world of uh, self-sovereignty for health products, for uh, supply chains, uh, for digital identity. Uh, how can we ensure that those very interesting shoots that you've identified uh, actually grow up into great big tall oak trees that can uh, that can go toe to toe with the biggest and the best. Well, well, Richard, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce a concept called the trust triangle, and and huh. we're very we're very um, we're very uh, familiar with this type of triangle when it comes to very simple everyday use. When I walk into I'm gonna use this example. When I walk into to Walmart and I make a purchase, when I when I'm ready to cash out. There is a there is an immediate trust triangle between myself, between Walmart, and between my bank. I scan my card or exploit my card, and that initially um, requires that all three parties participate. So um, uh, Walmart sends the transaction over to the bank, asking, you know, is David's card good enough or his bank account good enough to be able to verify that transaction? The, the bank says, yep, and David has to verify with a PIN. And, and the U.S. is a bit of a different animal. We know the U.K. and everyone mm-hmm. else uses PINs. So that trust triangle happens in merchants, and there is a flow of funds throughout that spectrum. If you think of identity, if somebody wants to use or wants me to, if I want to walk into an establishment that wants to verify that I'm over, you know, 19 in in the province of Ontario, why do I have to give them my address? They just need to know I'm over 19. Again, a trust triangle can occur between myself, the establishment being the verifier, and the issuer of that digital credential that I've created. And that, that verifier might pay a micro cent for that. And I think when we look at, at these things that are going on, if, if you look at the fraud industry for credit cards, which I think globally is about a $30 billion industry, $9 billion in North America, we're seeing companies like MasterCard on the Trust Over IP Foundation, and we're seeing companies like Visa mm. on credentials on file, getting into, the, getting into verification because if I can verify that a user online has a trusted identity and proves that transaction, then I can reduce the cost of the ecosystem. So I think when you look at that part of the transaction, where does that befall us? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to mention a very wonderful Canadian success in the last few years, Shopify. The shop, will Shopify have interest in that? So will, you know, will, um, you know, you know, uh, Omer's Ventures, will, will, who will, mm-hmm. Who will be involved in that? I think I think if we can promote that emergence of of this digital um, transformation technology, it'll extend in as as was mentioned earlier. Now you can have accredited credentials or non-accredited credentials. Know who the user is. Know who that they've been verified by a brokerage firm or an independent financial service. And now maybe they can buy a thousand dollar green bond because we know who they are. Okay. So I think when it yeah, I was just going to say that I don't think anybody in this call uh, would argue with the idea that digital identity is incredibly important. Uh, um, but um, and and no, nor would I think nor would anybody argue with the fact that uh, we've got some wonderful innovators in in Canada, and the same is true in particular of AI and and mm-hmm. clean tech. So all all I I just want to throw in there that. There is an unfortunate side um, to that, which is that 
the governments in Canada, um, in particular the federal government, has chosen winners. And this is something that gov governments need to be very, very careful not to do, because the downside is that the rest of the innovation ecosystem uh, is not um, supported in the same way. And this is one of the arguments that the NCFA has been making to governments for the last four or five years, Craig. So yeah, digital identity is a fascinating topic. Absolutely. Uh, so sorry, I sort of interrupted you. Um, so carry on. Well, I, I, I agree with you. Um, but, but the interesting part, and, and you've just said a key word, I think when, when we think of, um, of, of this next generation, we're going to think of ecosystems. So there is going to be, um, we're, we're going to see a, a, an opportunity for a more level playing field. I might have a technology that verifies or does something in one area, and I need to be a verifier in an ecosystem. So I might be an innovator in healthcare technologies or healthcare information. I may be able to crawl into an ecosystem on an even playing field with a major player. That, that's the real neat part about this is I think um, we're going to be offering more parity, whether you're a caretaker of data, whether you're a processor of data, or whether you know, you're an innovator of, of data. And I think that's going to touch all aspects of all industries. And I think Canada has a massive opportunity to be leaders in that space. And, 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 and the other thing that I'll just touch on is that, that data will be country-centric. So Canada can, can provide major infrastructure opportunity, but U.S. data will reside in the U.S. and U.K. data will reside in the U.K. Um, so I, I think we're seeing that the, the opportunities for Canada to be innovative in the technology arena, um, I think, is, is very opportunistic right now. Can I just, I'm going to take you guys over to Mongolia for a minute. Um, when I was there in 2016... I like to get around. Um, <laughs> when I was there in 2016, the banking system had basically, they were taking away the, you know, the bricks and mortar. And if you wanted your money, basically you got a hold of the bank and I know it was a phone call or an email or what, and they would bring the money to your door and how they would identify you is you would put your thumb into this little device and it would mm -hmm. not only take your thumbprint, but your heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And apparently... Yep. Those are unique signatures. Now, now yep. I'll bring you back to Canada because the technology came out of Vancouver. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Uh, biometrics again is a, is a big area for Canada. It's it, there is a th this leadership um, position and and um, unfortunately Mongolia also had one of the biggest failures of, of a digital uh, a, a crypto exchange fraud. But but generally speaking, yes, there is there is huge opportunities in the space. Yeah, I think Canada does lead in various areas, not just this one. Um, but, but that's we're not saying that it doesn't lead in any areas. Uh, I, I, that's not quite the point that uh, we're making. Well, yeah, I think to to build on on what Colise has said, uh, and just to step back a tiny bit, a recurring public policy challenge, an industrial challenge, is is to scale up our best and our brightest. Uh, it's great to, to point to Shopify and they're, they've been a wonderful success, uh, but even this current federal government, uh, at least the Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, 
several years, a couple of years ago, uh, said what I'd like to see is 25 Shopify's. Uh, mm -hmm. And he's right. It's be just wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, but where are we? I'm not sure that we're all that far advanced. Uh, ultimately, we might get there, but the, there are great risks that we'll be a farm team for other countries, uh, other countries' industries, principally the U.S., but also also China and 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 others. Yeah, isn't, that's good. <laughs> sorry, but isn't part of the problem? I mean, from my perspective, from the environmental side. If you had an innovation and you wanted to get it off the ground, you'd take it to California or you'd take it to Germany because they're the mm -hmm. ones that would fund it. You couldn't get support within country to do those things. And I think that's a travesty because we may have the idea, but we may not commercialize the idea. Well, it's interesting because one of the CEOs I interviewed oh, nine or ten months ago, for this report I did, uh, CEO of a high-tech infotech company in Saskatoon. Uh, and he said the difference, the difference between here and there is that if, I, if my burn rate is really fast uh, and I need to get more capital, if I'm in Palo Alto down in the valley, then I could just walk across the hall and get it. But here in Saskatoon, oh, you know. No there's you know, no it's, local guys. <laughs> it's not as though the capital doesn't exist in Canada. It does. There's money sloshing around all over the place. I mean, we're one of the leading funders of mining globally, yep, yep. for example. So just so that there, we're not creating a false impression that somehow there is no ability to fund in Canada. Um, it's just that perhaps that funding either isn't being used at all. We know mm -hmm. various entities are just sitting on, on, on cash. Or it's going to what some of us might argue is to, to, the, to the wrong place, uh, like, like, like uh, uh, the oil sands, mm -hmm. for example. Well, I, think I was going to say... Look at the incentive structure in place to grow companies, capital incentive structure. And mm -hmm. mining, oil and gas have benefited from uh, mm -hmm. accelerated write-offs of capital cost allowance, uh, and they've benefited from flow-through shares. And there are yep. large parts of the tech industry today in Canada that are pushing for uh, the transferal of flow-through share concepts to uh, high tech uh, with a very broad definition uh, and away from mining oil and gas. Yeah, some of the incentives, as Mark Carney has just recently said, we need to get it on the ball with the with the carbon capture, carbon tax, uh, getting rid of the subsidies um, as soon as possible. But that's a bit of a different argument or a different topic. Yeah, being a micro cap uh, company and, and being on the public exchanges um, and having had multiple companies in that position since since the late 90s, I, I, will, I will agree with what was said. Um, the key, I think, in Canada is you can always get can Canadian money to develop something. World capital is is not generally within the spectrum of, of of funds or investors. So if you've got a great idea, you're going to likely get the minimum necessary capital to get to an MVP, a minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. But you are not likely to get growth capital in Canada. 
it 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 is it is a unique situation and that's why we have the export of the brain trust because people develop something here they develop it here and then they take it south and that's why i went back to shopify because shopify is a wonderful example and we do need 25 50 100 200 shopify's and we have had them over the years um, initially, you know, RIM, and we, we've had some great successes, but, um, but we don't see that repeatable um, enterprise over and over again. That's, that's the challenge. So getting money to start easy, getting money to grow tough. Yeah. I mean, we, we've heard this, um, you know, commercializing and scaling IP and, and some of the gaps and, the this really a question to everyone try to bring this um together and you know we'll we'll move to potentially wrap up the podcast so that's a very interesting discussion i've sat back and, and really just in, been taking in the different perspectives but with the the government uh having so much involvement in innovation and its importance to the canadian economy uh in in light of all the changes in the world with uh, and I read that I think it was 70% of Canadian Canada's exports go to the US and there could mm -hmm. be additional tariffs and we need to be more self-sufficient here. We've talked about capital gaps. Um, how do we get our infrastructure uh, to a point? And this is not so it's only the government we have to go to and say, uh, we don't like you picking horses, but you can't gap everything because We've sort of been under the thumb. We've under, been under, I'm, I'm not sure at this point if it's only a regulation. I'm not sure at this point if it's the government only picking horses, but I, I do sense uh, that there's been a lot of resources spent, but the average infrastructure, I'll use that expression, the, the tide that lift all, lifts all boats, the ability for industry to self-certify and, and create standards and as a result, create value that will bridge to larger sums of capital to the point where we're attracting, you know, those larger VC investors and, and funds up to actually, you know, operate up here, which is starting to happen as opposed to the brain trust uh, or drain that David was mentioning about. So what would this group here on the call like the uh, priorities to be in that regard? And what do they think the government's role should really be when it comes to supporting innovation, being that first customer, but being able to create enough infrastructure here so we can feed ourselves and get to that point where we, we do have enough capital? Or is it we're just limited to the population uh, and GDP growth that we have and we'll always be, you know, a smaller country and, and probably smaller going forward as far as the, the, the global impact is concerned. I love innovation. What, 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 we're, we're coming down to the end of the podcast. I want to pose that question. David, go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to say that, you know, right now um, um, the BC government is, is, is taking sort of a leadership position in, in self-sovereign ID or digital identity. And, uh, and tomorrow um, Ontario is, uh, is extended the submission um, guidelines and they've had town halls about, self-sovereign identity, privacy reform, all those types of things. So I think we're seeing governments get in. The, the, you know, uh, one of the things that has helped in this initial area is the framework for um, um, data, which is, which is you know, germane to most technology industries, has been sort of developed through GDPR in, in Europe. 
And um, uh, I like to think that it's been, to some extent, overdeveloped, um, uh, although that'll take some time to come back, um, in California with the CCPA. But Canada, you know, based on PEPIDA being a federal guideline for um, um, uh, sort of the management of data, the provinces are now seriously looking at, at how to home grow these opportunities. And I think that's going to lead to an entire new industry and technology that, that fosters cybersecurity, data infrastructure, data management, self-sovereign identity, digital credentials. And we are seeing, again, that leadership in Canada. So I think the government right now um, and digital innovation, I think, is doing a good job to try and figure out where we can lead. I disagree. <laughs> Got to be. That's okay. I, I've been on. I've been on town halls the last few days, so that's why I'm taking that yeah. position. I'm sure but, you're in that sector. Um, but but Michael King has been very very good about this uh, for years, going into Finance Canada and elsewhere to to talk 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 this through that what we what we need and the federal government must lead on this is an overarching innovation strategy and we don't have it what we have is is pathetic and uh you know all you need to do is compare it to what's going on in, in the uk with their overarching strategy and we don't even we don't even come close so i i would go for um michael king's uh um uh first and foremost uh uh thing that we need is, is, is a properly thought through and properly followed up national strategy. Well, I just want to, I just want to rebuttal that for one second. So I'm going to take the UK strategy and take it down to Gibraltar where one of the first uh, crypto security exchanges was developed and Alps and ultimately, which one of my companies was part of and ultimately left for Estonia because they just couldn't work within the regulatory framework. So I think the UK is a great place in developing a lot of great standards, but it, but um, for many organizations, I'm not sure that the framework for the, for the emerging digital transactions and digital economy is, is working that well. And I'm not, a, I'm not disagreeing that Canada doesn't have a long way to go, but we're seeing on the ground today the opportunities that that provincial governments, no, I'm not talking about federal, but on the provincial level, are taking a very, very good look at what technologies will transform the digital economy. Mm -hmm. and from, from my perspective, there are a number of steps that could be taken, starting off with recognizing the fact that this COVID pandemic has provided us with an opportunity to rethink pretty well everything. Uh, so I'd start off and... Uh, uh, with the tax system and the tax credit system. I don't know if shred tax credits do anything except provide op uh, opportunities for employment for uh, accountants and other advisors, uh, whether or not they actually result in uh, commercialization benefits is questionable and it's 4 billion bucks a year. Uh, change the tax system so that growing companies are taxed less than non-growing companies. You know, there's, a, there's a bias in the system so that startups, uh, smaller companies uh, benefit from a lower marginal tax rate than larger companies. I get rid of that. I take flow through shares and apply them to all the interesting tech sectors, including digital identity verification security that, uh, that we have. And I'd, I'd look for opportunities to uh, to increase the, uh, the, uh, the availability of earlier stage tech 
offerings to retail investors and change the definition of accredited investors more along the lines of what the SEC has for uh, uh, at least recently. Here, here. That sounds here, like here. Uh, increasing the caps of crowdfunding and maybe changing the name to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that well, I mean, we got to keep Bring up. Us with, <laughs> we got to keep up with the Jones. I I know Europe just passed their their five million cap euro cap, yeah. and the U.S. is moving that way. Change the credit. We 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 need to to move on some of those initiatives, and they've been studying it long long enough. And yeah. you know, the the boogeyman of fraud never appeared, uh, despite all that that concern. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not a time to, to put it in a box and and wait for it to to uh, either go this way or that way. <laughs> they, they gotta they gotta enable. Oh but Lynn, I, I'd like yeah. to to hear your closing uh, thoughts on on some of this, the the government's role in the innovation space. Well, I, I guess I'm going to come back to my ecological mindset, and this is a systems approach that we need. And I do agree that we have to, this is a moment in time when we get to rethink the system. But this is all part of, you know, how do we bring forward a green economy and how do we, how do we rebuild? Well, when you look at a forest, a forest doesn't start with the canopy trees, the big guys. The forest starts on the floor. And so we need to get opportunity for lower cost financing into the hands of the innovators who largely are the small businesses. We need to remove the barriers to success for them to get going. And we need to sort of bring together, you know, get rid of the subsidies of the things that we really don't want to support anymore because it's, 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 um, you know, giving one large company so you can get a nice photo op in for one town doesn't help everybody else who maybe wants to buy the hydrogen car as opposed to the EV car. So I, I think there has to be a, a real serious fundamental systems rethink, but we got to start by supporting small business in the first place. 95% of businesses in Canada are in companies with fewer than 50 people. Mm-hmm. That doesn't include the one person shops. And you're talking about about a million companies who are, you know, they, they're family operated things. So they don't have, um, you know, um, they don't report um, on, um, on their accounting systems to the extent that we have to, when we have a larger company, but they still are part of the economy and we need to get our, our heads around in engendering that growth from the ground up. And I think that digital finance has the opportunity that if we get it right, that's how you can flow money faster, reducing the cost of getting capital to them. But it's also, we can overcome some of the, you know, the barriers that small businesses have with, the large financial institutions who, you know, you pay something, but they sit on your money for two days to collect the interest of those two day period. So I'm very hopeful that we can get the digital economy figured out quickly because I think it offers not only environmental, social, but economic value. Perfect. Uh, Robin, before we um, move to to close today's um, very valuable discussion, 
around capital and government's innovation stuff. Do you have any closing thoughts here? Uh, I gave no, my, my national strategy point will do it. I think I'll give you less to do on the editing front. <laughs> well, I guess uh, I want to just take this time to thank everyone for their valuable time and insights. You know, we had a very vibrant discussion, uh, you know, very interesting for pilot one for, for an NCFA advisor uh, podcast follow-up. So certainly covered a lot of ground and, and a lot for everyone to think about. Um, if anyone would like to get in touch with, with any of our guests today, uh, I'm certainly going to um, share their contact information and, and some of the links that were discussed in the podcast, in the show notes. And so I just wanted to thank, uh, you know, Richard, Robin, David, Lynn for, for joining us. Thanks so much, everyone, for, for your time and for your valuable uh, participation at, in NCFA as an advisor and in the community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Have Thanks, a good Craig. day, everyone. Stay safe. Okay, Take so... Care. That's uh, a wrap, folks. So thanks for tuning in to this very special NCFA advisor edition of episode 44 of FinTech Fridays. If you're new to FinTech Fridays, please check out some of the incredible past episodes on the site. We think you'll be surprised with what you find. We look forward to seeing you next Friday for another episode of FinTech Fridays. Have a great weekend, everyone. Sure. Bye for now. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Take care, everyone. All the best. Be safe. Thank you. Thank Bye you. for now. Yep. Bye-bye.